Broadway Bullet, Volume 816, for April 12, 2018, the Dramatist Guild Foundation Fellows episode. Don't miss a single episode of Broadway Bullet. Subscribe for free at broadwaybullet.com, in the iTunes app, or wherever else you get your podcasts. In this episode, we talk with four people in the Dramatist Guild Foundation Fellowship Program. DGF Fellows is a year-long development intensive led by esteemed writers. Participants spend a year honing their craft while developing full-length pieces, culminating in an industry presentation at an off-Broadway theater. The program is highly sought after for its successful format of bringing playwrights and musical theater writers together in the learning process. So, the writers we talk to are Keele Gibson is a multidisciplinary artist, including work as an activist, teaching artist, and award-winning playwright. He is a recipient of the Van Leer Fellowship, 2016 to 2018, at New Dramatists, and recently finished work as a public artist in residence for the City of New York's Department of Cultural Affairs and Administration of Children's Services, working with LGBTQ foster youth. Janine McGuire and Ari Lawton-Simon are musical theater fellows as well as members of the BMI Advanced Musical Theater Workshop. They have collectively written and produced concerts, stage musicals, plays, film scores, orchestral pieces, choral works, and custom songs, in addition to teaching musical theater and performing arts outreach in the community. Finally, Riti Sashdeva is an alum of the Public's Emerging Writers Group and the Women's Project. A theater maker and cultural worker, Reedy has been creating art in some form for over 25 years. Incorporating text, installation, and dance into her writing and performance, she straddles the conventions of U.S. theater, performance art, and international approaches to theater. All this, coming up. thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist. 
because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that these artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business. And you learn how to do that as well as your art at the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com. And uh, if you are a senior or junior, come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. Up close. Keele Gibson is one of the new Dramatist Guild Foundation fellows, a playwright. He loves doing racially charged material. And he is here to talk about that playwriting, his education, theater in general. <laughs> I'm sure he has a lot of great thoughts to share, and he's here for that. How are you doing today, Akile? I'm doing well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, so what brought you to playwriting? Oh, my God. I think, like a lot of people who write or produce or direct, I started out uh, as an actor. I was bitten by the acting bug when I was younger, and I did a lot of theater in high school and community theater, and came to the city, went to Pace University as an actor, and discovered I had a propensity for other things in the theater. And so I decided to work on those once I graduated, and uh, the acting gigs weren't coming as much as I thought they were. Um, so I expanded my voice, and now writing is my pri primary like way of expression. So that's... That's how I started out. So the the DGF Fellow is a pretty uh, pretty prestigious thing. To, oh yeah, it's uh, when, on your resume. <laughs> yeah, when the the letter came in the mail, uh, I was very happy. <laughs> I was very thrilled. Um, yeah. Did you have to apply multiple times, or did you? I have applied multiple times, definitely. Yeah, I, yeah. I've heard that a lot of the people it takes a while sometimes to get in. Yeah, persistent. I think this was my third time. So third time's the charm. The old adage applies, <laughs> at least with me. Yeah. So uh, what are your what are your main avenues? That have you had any of your plays mounted yet, or um, mostly still... workshopping yeah. and the whole reading circuit? Um, I've I've done a couple of fellowships. I'm at New Dramatist right now as a Van Leer Fellow. Okay. And two fellows at once. My yes, God, man, share it around. I know it's crazy. <laughs> I'm also at Page Seventy Three uh, uh, as a part of their writers group. So I'm sort of like mining my own process and uh, creating new works. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, a production comes yeah. very soon. But you know, I'm I'm. All about the work right now. Well, tell us a little about your work, because like somebody, somebody here at the office when when I said you're coming on said, "Oh, he's great. He writes wonderfully racially charged yeah. material," which is where I kind of got that little quick summary. Yeah. But, um, perhaps you want to like discuss that concept further of what that means to you. Well, you know, it's interesting because I try to in my work find the intersection of being black in America and being queer in America. Um, so it's racially charged. It's Queerly charged. I don't know if that's a term, but I'm going to I'm going to make that a term today. Yeah, I I try to write stuff that navigates both of these arenas that I live in in America. Um, so with that, my first play was called Nigger Faggot, and I tried to like split myself down the middle and write about being queer in America and being black in America and see where these two things did not compute. Sort of make a Venn diagram. Do you get straight white people that are afraid to say the title? Oh yeah, people no, yeah, people see the resume and they're like, "Oh, that's that's the title of your play." I think it's very 
important to make people uncomfortable. I know Robert O'Hara says that everyone in the theater is welcome, but nobody is safe. Mm -hmm. And I think I subscribe to that yeah. in my work. Uh, like my new play is called Hashtag New Slaves. And it's, it's something that I'm very excited about to explore and discover in my work. The like uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. So um, what, what were the biggest things that, in, how long have you been writing plays now? I know you said you applied three oh times. Oh my goodness, so. I think professionally yeah. I've been emerging for yeah. five years, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what has been your biggest process? What have been the biggest things you've learned as a playwright over those five years? If you could go back five years ago oh to your God. five years ago self and say things would go faster for you if you did this, hmm. what would you say? I think finding a process, which still sort of uh, is elusive hmm. from time to time, but when I was first starting out, I didn't really have a process. It was just sort of write what you know, write fast and hard and whatever comes out, put it out there. Now, of course, I know about you know, workshops and yeah. readings and the first draft and, you know, research. I didn't know how to research when I first started out. I just sort of wrote what was in me to write, which is important to do, especially with a first draft. But going back and shoring up sort of the things that initially come out of you, I think if I'd mm -hmm. known that back then, mm -hmm. my plays would have been stronger. Not to say yeah. that they aren't, but yeah, that was important to realize and learn. Yeah. What, what's your take on the whole workshop process? Because I, I hear the term mm. workshopped to death, you know, a lot mm -hmm. in the playwriting community. And I'm curious your take on how you feel the process works. Yeah. Or I, doesn't. I mean, I think that's a real <laughs> thing. I definitely have plays that are in the drawer right mm. now because they've been read to death. And I definitely have plays that people love. Like, I call it a, a calling card play mm -hmm. where it's a play that shows my voice, or any playwright's voice, but it will never get produced. It's sort of the play that people pass around and they go, oh my God, this is a great singular voice, but we're not gonna do it. Um, and I think that's not something that's unique to just me. I think a lot of playwrights experience that. They have a play that is lovely and showcases their talent and their voice, but will never get done. And I, I don't know how to combat that thing. Um, but yeah, there's definitely this, this notion that you have to workshop something multiple times in multiple spaces before you mm -hmm. get a production, which I think is changing with self-production and mm -hmm. YouTube and people yeah. are like putting their own stuff out there. Are you doing um, any of that stuff besides the stage? Are you working on... I mean, I want to get into film and television. Mm -hmm. I think every writer <laughs> wants to dive down that because television is like... In its golden age right yeah. now, it's there are very good stories being told, and a lot of playwrights are working in the rooms. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to like dip my toe into that pond. But for right now, it's mostly writing for the theater. Yeah. yeah. My issue with the workshop process, mm -hmm. um, whether things get workshopped to death or not, I think is not too debatable. Actually, they are. But my <laughs> issue with all this workshopping is, I think it ignores too much of the visual element of the visual power of theater. Mm. It, it puts so much emphasis to me on the text, yeah, which is important in playwriting, but you know, for, for a new playwright, I, I, I think if you're envisioning really powerful visuals 
that tell the story yeah. that I feel a lot of times that's missed and critiqued and often said, like, get rid of that, get rid of that. This is, I'm not connecting this. And <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's hard, I think, in the beginning stages to parse that out because yeah. I very much think the first reading or the first few should be about the text. Mm -hmm. But playwrights pretty much know what they're going to keep and what they're going to get rid yeah. of. Then a director comes into the process, and directors are oftentimes visual and textual. Yeah. So it's... So you have to marry the two, and if you do a workshop over and over and over again, yeah. it's just music stands, and then it's people holding yeah. scripts, and you sort of lose the design elements. And part of what I love about theater is that it's so collaborative, and that when the designers come in, you have people that are like, oh, I know how to tell a story with lighting, with sound, mm -hmm. with sets. Okay, now <laughs> it's a bigger thing. The play is becoming this huge thing instead of just this thing on paper. So I, I agree with that. Like, workshops should be more produced, I think, yeah. if we're going to keep doing workshops over and over again of the same play. Yeah, or, or at least a way to get into more of the idea of a short stage reading or, you know. You know, you know. Yeah, the 29-hour thing, yeah. sort of. But, like, maybe a little more tech-produced. Yeah. yeah. Let some lighting tell the story. Let some things. Because, I mean, I, I think playwrights need to see that. Because again, the, the whole process is of a workshop, supposedly, is not just to work on the dialogue. It's so the playwright can understand what needs work. Right. What, yeah. Where the storytelling uh, is maybe lacking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, where it can be amplified by other designers. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because I, yeah, I think on the same hand, a playwright could fall in the trap of overriding those moments that maybe were actually there. Yeah, oh, they're yeah, just yeah. not on the page. The quiet yeah. moments that, yeah. yes, there there yeah. is a tendency, especially in the first draft, to overwrite. Yeah. I, uh, for me, at least. And yeah, that can be done with a lighting cue or a yeah. sound cue, and it's stronger and more deeply felt. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been... And I'm still... I'm, I'm holding fast to my guns as yet, but I've been, like, I've been working on this one play mm -hmm. where I've got um, two kid actors... Mm. It's, it's dealing with the, it's dealing with the parents, and I have it that the parents always see the actors as kids. Okay, so it's the same people as kids. Oh wow! You know, and talking like adults, dressed in the same costumes, you know, is the thing. And on the page, everybody, every time the first time they're like, I just don't get. I read this. I don't. I, I'm, like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that you know when it's visually in front of you, this is. Absolutely, one hundred percent, not confusing. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Some people. Uh, I have a, a play with kids as well, but they're played by adults. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember I was doing a workshop, and somebody was like, "Oh, let's hire kid actors," and we did. And the whole time I was like sweating because I was like, "I don't think this is working," but I needed to have that yeah. process, and that that's what I'm thankful for. For workshops whenever you're like oh that doesn't work that's <laughs> but great. i do know if this were done at music stands still and they weren't in costume and weren't in the same costume and standing in a line i know it would also still be very confusing yeah yeah you know? <laughs> yeah and sometimes you need the full <laughs> fully produced or more produced version to see yeah. that yeah completely <laughs> so what do you do to Take care of getting your work out there. What what do you what stuff are you working on to advance your career to work towards that production? Is it just submitting, or do you do a lot of networking? What you know? it's 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 hard because uh, I try to live an organic life um, <laughs> and try to let things happen as they 
will. But I always say that, you know, the, the entertainment industry, not theater, I love yeah. theater, but the entertainment industry with a capital E is the Hunger Games, right? You go sort of into this Thunderdome and everyone that you work with is talented and wants to be successful. And that's a great thing. But you know, that comes with networking. And I have anxiety about networking and I think a lot of people do. A lot of like do and I think especially a lot of playwrights do. I yeah. think playwright, playwriting attracts the introverted person who likes who sit alone in their room with words. <laughs> and, and, you know, spiral into psychosis. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, I talk, I talk to my characters, and uh, those are the conversations that, you know, find themselves into my work. But then, like, it's hard to bring that into a room and be like, hi, I just went crazy alone and talked to people out loud, and now let them talk to you. It's, it's a very interesting thing. So, uh, yeah, I submit to almost everything that I possibly can. Um, I network, but I, it makes me feel icky to say network. Um, I, I just, I try to like meet people and go see as much as possible. And if I like or respond to some work, I try to get coffee with that person and start a dialogue. I have, think, you, have you found any tricks or conversation tricks that help you with networking? For oh no, I, I literally sweat. Well, I will give you. I'll I give work. you one then. <laughs> yes, I'll give you one for any playwright. <laughs> the biggest trick that I've discovered with networking is don't promote yourself mm. at all. Mm -hmm. Provide solutions to other people. Mm. So if you meet a director, find out they direct, and rather than saying about your play, mm -hmm. say, "I know this great actor that read. You ah. should check out this actor." Okay. And talk, I mean, it, it, it's a really easy way. And it will probably at some point lead to them asking what you do. Right, you know, right. Or if it doesn't, they, they still feel like you've helped them and made a good impression. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Like, I find, you know, honestly, I find one of the best ways of networking here is I have a student that's here with me. Mm -hmm. And people love helping her out or the student they bring. And and it's great. And I feel good. She's, you know, getting some wonderful opportunities. And I, I don't have a self the only self-agenda is I'm getting myself out there, too. Right. But I don't ever expect, like, oh, this person's going to give me this. Right. Per yeah, you know? that sounds that sounds very altruistic. And, yeah. and it's, that's what I said. It's, it's, for me, it gets past this idea of networking feeling icky. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, it's, a it's a weird, like, dichotomy. Like, oh, it feels <laughs> icky, but I have to do it. But I like this person. But, you know, if you know someone before you meet them, that's yeah. when I'm like, anxiety is <laughs> coming. Um, yeah. But my friend Philip Dawkins, who wrote Charm, which was just the MCC, okay. in the play, like, um, there's a line that says, compliments bring a person out. We want to bring the person out. And I have learned since working on that play with him that, like, compliments help to, like, ease the tension, mm -hmm. at least within myself. So like, mm -hmm. if I love or know somebody's work and I'm like, oh my God, I love your work. <laughs> they feel yeah. like, they feel like, oh, I can talk to this person. We're at least yeah. in the same room. They're not a crazy fan. Or if they are, they're also an artist. But yeah. It, and especially it, in theater. Yeah, I thought, you know, yeah. I think people are afraid. In, in theater, I mean, my professor used to say this at my grad school, mm -hmm. theater famous ain't famous. 
<laughs> so the, and, but what I mean is actually complimenting their work or letting them know you've seen their work, at least in the theater world, they aren't sick of hearing that yet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. They aren't being accosted at restaurants all the time. They aren't. Yeah. Not everyone's <laughs> Lin-Manuel, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and even Lin-Manuel is the nicest guy. I, I interviewed yes. him back when he did In the Heights. And mm-hmm. and I was here like a, um, a year and a half ago, and I, right after, you know, a few months after it opened. And I just bumped into him on the street walking down towards the show. Mm-hmm. You know, ordinary, you know, and I just recognized him. And I said, hey, Lin-Manuel. And he actually stopped. And I said, you probably don't remember, but I interviewed you on Broadway Billet a few years ago. And he actually stopped and chatted with three million moments, said good thanks, and, oh, wow. and moved on. And I, I am pretty sure that he did. Uh, he actually kind of <laughs> nodded like he remembered me, but I'm pretty sure he did not. <laughs> but he was just, you know. Yeah, it's true. And theater is a big, it feels like a big family. Like everybody knows someone who knows someone else. Like you're, the six degrees of separation thing is like, Real and even probably smaller, it's probably like three degrees in theater, especially in New York. Yeah, so as long as you compliment and love their work, you can at least talk to them for five minutes. All right, well, I, I, I've certainly had fun with this spirited discussion. So. This has been lovely, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, yeah. Up close, Dramatist Guild Foundation is a wonderful organization, in addition to all the other services they provide. They also have a fellowship to help build budding both playwrights and musical theater writers careers. And we have uh, new DGF fellows in the musical theater camp, McGuire and Simon. It's Ari, Magu- Ari Simon and Janine McGuire. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. We're great. Having a good day. <laughs> yep. All right. So you're a month into your fellowship. We are. We are. <laughs> um, we've gotten the opportunity to present one time so far. Uh, from our new show, and it was already very helpful. So, so what is the fellowship? And, and or I guess, why did you apply? What were you hoping to get out of the fellowship? Well, um, the fellowship is a nine-month, so like a scholastic year fellowship, basically, um, that's sponsored by the foundation. Um, and uh, it's really kind of gives a developmental chance to shows in progress that uh, is hard to find around. Uh, we're members of the BMI Workshop, which is really uh, song-specific. And so you get like really great micro look at what you're doing, but uh, we were looking for a place where we could see the show more as a whole and get a, a smart group of artists' uh, feedback on something that they really become intimately aware of throughout the process of the year, um, so that it's a, a slightly more holistic perspective. And we've set a goal of having, at the end of this nine months, the complete draft of the piece. So having a structure and a home and a, a community to, to work on the show with uh, is, is really helpful. Wonderful. Did you have to apply multiple? I know sometimes I talked to somebody before, mm-hmm. I think, who had to, who like applied multiple mm-hmm. times to get in. Uh, how was your process of? Well, we. Uh, <laughs> that, that's that's, that's, that's here. So Janine is like the, the queen of, of spreadsheets and data. We have we have a, a spreadsheet for fellowships and grants and things that it, like have all the due dates. Yeah. And uh, I just I had heard somebody. Uh, actually, my roommate is a composer also, and he uh, he had mentioned. Uh, a deadline, and I was thinking, oh, wait, is that is that coming up? And it was really soon, <laughs> and so we needed four songs. So we um, were like, well, let's write a fourth song for this project so that we can apply, um, and then took some time with our, our kind of cover letter artist statement and things and just put together the best application that we, we thought we could give. Um, and fortunately, it was it, it worked the first time. Yeah, it did, it did work the first time. And the reason that, um, you know, I guess the fellowship had been on our radar for a while as we've had, mm-hmm. you know, peers and colleagues 
uh, have done done the fellowship in the past. Um, we uh, we felt that we were ready at this point because we finally were ready to you know to hit the ground running with this particular show. We had been waiting to get the rights to mm-hmm. the film that we are adapting, and um, and just you know and waiting to put a few of those sort of business ducks in a row before proceeding. And so it worked out actually. It was perfect timing to have. I think we got the rights. To, our, to the film one month prior to the application deadline. So we knew that when we were going in applying, we could say, we have the rights okay. and we're going to do this. Okay, I, I definitely know I have another yeah. topic I want to talk about okay. then, mm-hmm. uh, which is, well, first of all, what film are you adapting then? The film is called The Bubble. It's a 2006 film. Uh, it's an Israeli film okay. by Eitan Fox and, um, and Gal Ochovsky. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is, um, it's, a, it's a love story. It's, um, it's a story of two men who fall in love. One is Israeli, one's Palestinian. Um, it takes place in Tel Aviv, and uh, we, we we fell in love with the movie. We knew we Let's wanted to talk to a performer who might be a good guy oh, for you. Huh? That's good. That's good to know. <laughs> Isaac good to know. Sutton, who performs in Tel Aviv, and yeah. So so uh, we about it was almost actually three years ago. I think yeah. yeah, three years ago that we thought this could be this could be something. This could be our next project. But um, you know, it took us a while to find a lawyer uh, to negotiate the rights to find out who we needed to be speaking to to have that conversation, to go through several rounds of negotiations, and then to finally sign the final option agreement. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it took a little while to do that. And uh, well, yeah, was... we learned a lot through, the, through that process about what it, what it means to you know, option a piece. <laughs> so what, well, yeah, what were some of the steps? What were the, what were the hardest things that you had to coordinate to well, I think we, for, I mean, to, to back up to the beginning, like, we had to gauge our own interest even mm-hmm. really in doing this. So we liked, we liked the movie, but we're like, okay, let's... <laughs> Try something. Let's mm-hmm. write some songs. So we we did write a, a song and presented it at BMI, um, and uh, that day was actually being moderated by Stephen Flaherty, who's a you know a, a hero yeah. of ours, and uh, and he had really great things to say, and the workshop was really responsive, and so we wrote a couple more, and then did them in a concert as well, and there just seemed to be a lot of interest around this story, and so we decided from there, well, we should go ahead and and pursue the rights to this, and. In the way that it happens, so often in this industry, it, it really, so much is who you know or who you are able to meet for whatever reasons. And uh, we were part of it, another event at Rockwood Music Hall and met through a friend of a friend's girlfriend's boyfriend, a lawyer, um, who said, oh, I do work in Israel and you should, uh, you should let me know. So when we got to the point that we actually really wanted to pursue the rights, we reached out to him. Um, and we got a response back from the senior partner of the firm saying he's no longer with us, but I'm interested. And, and he said, I've taken the liberty of checking out your, um, your videos on, on YouTube, and you know, I'm interested in representing you. And, so, and he gave us you know, a good deal on a retainer, and we just needed to you know, figure out how we were exactly how we were going to pay for that at the moment, you know, and um, even though it was a great deal, it was still so much that we need to Musical theater with, writers you know. is inspiring. No, and then also I had to think about, you know, what, what kind of, what, uh, you know, what option levels, you know, what, um, you know, what kind of money we would also be, would be outlaying for, um, you know, for the option to develop the work. And so, so we had to, we had to figure out, we had to raise a little bit of money. So we, we, we did that through some of our own, you know, performances and, uh, writing commissions and things right. like that. You know, we we had to figure that out. You have to really so. kind of chase chase the money and mm-hmm. and make and make mm-hmm. opportunity. I mean, I think uh, I'm I'm originally from Kansas um, and in Wichita, actually, where I'm from, it has an amazing arts community, which I'm very much still a part of in ways that I'm a product of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it's really great to to. It's a lot easier to get money from people that you know really well or who mm-hmm. know you really mm-hmm. well 
um, especially when you're less of a known quantity as we are starting out. Um, and so I, I did a concert when I was home for Christmas. I just said, I'm just going to do like an hour long kind of concert recital, perform some of our songs, show some video clips from things that we were working on, talk a little bit about what we did and was able to like make half the money for that retainer in, in a one night concert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it's those, those kind of little things that we, uh, we do and you, you, you piece it together. Sometimes you use credit cards. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, um, yeah, we're, we're getting more and more and more used to asking for money and, <laughs> and, and, you know, really showing our project to people who mm-hmm. might be interested early so that they can have the opportunity to be, to be on board and help you know, provide financially or otherwise. Yeah. So. Well, I know that you have uh, brought a couple tracks for us to play so that they can hear a little bit of mm-hmm. your writing online. Uh, do you want, should we play the first one? And sure. The first can... one is from the show that we were talking about. Okay. Oh, and I should mention that um, the film is called The Bubble. Our show's name will be called Borders. Okay. So this, this is a song from Borders. All right. Anything you want to tell us about this song before you? What's the name of it? Should we give it a setup? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. sure. Let's, so give it, let's give it a setup. It's, it's, uh, the name of the song is Just a Kiss. So, um, so quickly, the, uh, the meat cute, if you will, <laughs> of this uh, a story is that they actually, um, the two men see each other at a border checkpoint. Um, in the Palestinian territory, where Noam, the Israeli, is working on reserve duty in the military, and Ashraf, the Palestinian, is crossing the checkpoint. Um, and there's an incident that happens, and uh, Noam drops his military badge, his ID, and Ashraf finds it and picks it up um, and decides to return it to him in Tel Aviv, which is a very dangerous thing for him to do uh, because he's not allowed to be outside of the territories. Um, so he shows up at his doorstep and is like, "We dropped this," and Noam invites him in and um, up to the roof to show him a view of the city. And there's instant chemistry between them. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's there's chemistry, yes, chemistry and a look uh-huh. and a touch. Uh, but so they, yeah, so they go up to the uh, the roof and it starts with uh, him, Noam, introducing Ashraf to the city and getting very nervous. And Ashraf just leans over and and kisses him, and that's that's where this starts. All right, well, let's take a listen. It's just a kiss. We'll stay out of danger. We won't go too far. We'll stay who we are. No one will know. If we stop at this and you stay a stranger, then nothing is lost. No line has been crossed. And I can still go I'm not saying that I wouldn't stay tonight if I could If things were different in this world Then maybe I would But it's just a kiss It's gone in a moment And I will be too I know one that you will miss if we leave it at just a kiss. That's just a kiss. Just say that I want you. It's not a big deal. It's just how I feel. What are you? It's not 
not gonna kill you At least tell me will you stay for a drink I'm not saying that I wouldn't stay the night if I could But staying's crazy Or it could be crazy good It's just a kiss I guess I could stay The world is still turning One more kiss. All right. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about your writing process. I mean, I, I think every team has a little bit different way of working together. Is it, you know, music first, lyrics first, a little bit of both? What uh, how, do you ever cross into each other's territory? What are the what are you, what are your ground rules? How do you guys <laughs> do, we, yeah, do, we, do we do we push our borders? Sometimes? We do, yes. we do. Well, gosh, every song is is different. It depends on it depends on the task at hand. But um, one thing that makes us maybe a little bit unusual um, or different from other teams is that uh, is that we we blur the lines between who writes the music and who writes the lyrics. Um, we both actually have music degrees from college and and then have studied you know theater writing um, mostly at BMI and also some other places um, and. Uh, Essentially, we um, we discuss at length each song moment or each you know show that each you know piece of segment of a theatrical piece that we're working on together at length, and then um, mostly in the same room, throw out ideas and see kind of what sticks. And it's not super important to us who thought of what. And um, yeah, and the lines between music and lyrics are are blurry, and and we like to sort of volley back and forth a lot. It's very uncommon, although it has happened. It's uncommon for you know uh, an entire you know piece of music or a full lyric to materialize without the other half. Uh, almost always, we start by sort of solidifying a section, kind of figuring out what the mold of this thing will be, and then um, and then building it together. Mm-hmm. That's a really active conversation, and I think you know all, all collaborations, of course, work yeah. work differently. But um, there the times when we have gone um, like full music on one end and full lyric on the other have been usually because of uh, proximity. I mean, because of I, one of us is away doing something or whatever. And there has been a very detailed and lengthy mm-hmm. discussion beforehand. That's where mm-hmm. it always starts. It starts with mm-hmm. the conversation. So I would say, you know, if a, if a song, sa- say, like, takes 20 hours total, mm-hmm. you know, to, to do, then we will have, we will have talked for like four mm-hmm. or five mm-hmm. before anything mm-hmm. happens. Um, and then we'll spend the next four or five together and talking things out and kind of setting the mold. Um, and then we we'll might go away from each other and do another just, four or five. Just have those messy hours alone or, where you, you just know, jot a million brain ideas. Dump, and then we come back and, and, uh, and kind of assemble all of that and then start the process yeah. of weeding through and refining and making making all those those little detailed changes, um, but kind yep. of figuring out what it's going to be on a macro level first. Mm-hmm. Like, what is... There's this this major tenet in the BMI curriculum that is uh, our our moderator, Pat Cook, has his, his yeah. Ten Commandments of musical theater writing, and one of them is uh, a song shall be about one thing and one thing only. Yeah. And so it's kind of like figuring out what that one thing what is one thing first, is. and mm-hmm. then what's the best way to capture that in a hook, which is both lyrical and musical. 
And then from there, like, what is the structure that will tell the story in the best way? Um, so we're able to kind of create the outline, and then it's just about filling it in. Do you guys write book two, or...? We now are. Um, okay. We, you know, we started in BMI um, learning the craft of songwriting, but um, our current project and our previous project um, were ones that we did write the book for. So, um, so we are now doing that too, and that's a, that's a fun process, you know. Also, just sitting, sitting, typing together, you know, yeah. saying things out loud and seeing what sticks. I mean, I, I personally gravitate toward sort of the, the the macro structure of a scene and kind of you know what things need to be accomplished and what the dramatic beats are. And Ari is fantastic at writing dialogue at actually you know tapping into a character's voice and you know figuring out exactly what words to put in their mouth. Uh, but but somehow we just also yeah. do that in sort of just a volleying in the same room kind of kind of way. And it's it's fun to. To, we've gotten really, really fond of voice memos, and I'm just kind of like just recording a lot of what we do. Can be a total pain to uh, to weed through sometimes um, if you have have too long of things. But or or if I'll say something or she'll say something, we'll just immediately like say say, say that again before you forget it. Um, but it's just in the in the conversation and in sort of the improv. Um, I do. I come from a performance background originally, and so it's it's fun that you just you get going on a character and on a thing you'll just say stuff that you don't feel like you're saying anything and then you listen back to it and it's like oh wow that was that was good mm -hmm. that was, that's funny i like that you know <laughs> yeah we have to be very um open with each other and and we've developed a, a sense of i think security and comfort with sharing our dumbest ideas possible with each other <laughs> our most off the cuff our most uncensored ideas um we have one saying just between us that's um there's nothing stupid oh, sorry nothing nothing stupid nothing, stupid, nothing, nothing sacred, sacred. Both of those those two things, uh, where that that really the nothing stupid is really important. We're just we have to be able to say literally anything. You know, <laughs> so, you know. we said some of the dumbest things. And sometimes sometimes you know if you're you're holding yourself back, one of us holds ourselves back and says, oh, you know, I don't know about this. We say, tell tell me, just tell me the dumbest idea possible. Tell me. Tell <laughs> and sometimes me. it's and, like that's not actually that's it's never it's never that it's never <laughs> as dumb as you think it is. And sometimes even if it doesn't work at all, it it will spur the other person on to think of something else. So so we've just over the years we've we've gotten comfortable with that with each other all right well let's listen to the other song okay. um want to tell us a little bit about this next one we're going to hear um i'd actually like to tell you what it's from i'd like to tell you after i would okay. i would yeah. i think it would be interesting because this song functions differently outside of the the show than it does uh, the, is the it still from the no it's just, okay. this is from express so it's a, another show of ours an immersive musical that we've written okay well, let's take a listen Train. 
So, uh, so this song we we feel like has kind of become our anthem in a way, and uh, Maria Maria's performance um, on this on this uh, track is so is so beautiful. Um, but uh, in it, it has all of these metaphors about the subway, um, turnstiles and trains and everything. And I, I think when you hear it, not knowing that it's from a show that is set in the subway, um, the metaphors land a little bit differently um and in in the show it is a 16 year old girl who is singing to her mother it's 1964 and they're on the train to the world's fair um and this uh this black woman has come on the train named gloria and started a conversation with the daughter jane um and the mother kate is not really approving of her having this conversation because she's one of those i send a check to the naacp so i'm not a racist people um and uh and uh, it's Jane really feels moved from this that uh, to to just speak with her mother about how she really feels and kind of call her out on her her casual racism. Um, and so uh, so yeah, so that's how it that's how it functions in the show. <laughs> oh yeah, and we like to think that that um that it that that it really that its message is is what we want to get out into the world. That uh, and we um yeah we we like it as a standalone song as well. All right. Well, look forward to seeing your name on some uh, Broadway billboards so soon in the future. <laughs> and uh, so Janine McGuire and Ari Simon, best of luck. And thanks so much for sitting down with us here in the wonderful Dramatist Guild Foundation room uh, to chat about your, your business and your career. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Up close. I am here with Riti, Riti Sachdeva who is one of the DGF fellows as a playwright this year. And uh, she has come into the studio to talk about her work, playwriting in New York, and who knows what else we're going to discover over this interview. Yes. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. It's a beautiful, <laughs> sunny day in New York. So. Yes. yes. So, so, uh, so the DGF fellow, um, you've been uh, now in the program about a month, is that right? About a month, yes. So... So what is it about the fellowship that drew you to it? One of the most exciting things about the fellowship is that it is, the cohort is made of both playwrights and musical theater people. Mm -hmm. And as I am discovering in this short time of being a fellow, <laughs> so we meet about twice a month. Okay. And once a month, the playwrights bring in pages and the other... Uh, day that we meet the musical theater people bring in their pages and it is such a different process mm -hmm. for us 
And the musical theater people are super structure focused, <laughs> which, uh, which as a playwright uh, yeah. is always useful for me. Uh, you know, they know where their show ends. <laughs> and um, we are very persnickety. I also am a, a writer as well, so uh -huh. playwright lyricist. So <laughs> yeah, and so that's fascinating for me. I was writing this morning. I've been writing every morning, and I was wondering this morning. I was like, should I just jump to the last scene today? Should I just do that? And I couldn't. I may, I may before I'm supposed to. But yeah, so I think that that's really exciting for me to to see their process, to hear the hear the the ways that they talk about their work, including that they come in. Many of them, actually, I think all three pairs have come into this fellowship knowing. Um, that there is a production opportunity just ahead. Whereas the playwrights mm -hmm. are like, I am just writing because mm -hmm. I love to write and mm -hmm. I have this fellowship and I, we can bring in pages mm -hmm. and Diana's mm -hmm. son is our facilitator and she's amazing and maybe one day, mm -hmm. someday, someone will notice this play <laughs> and it will be produced. Mm -hmm. it's, so it's a really different, you know, because we had talked about the mm -hmm. business of, yeah. of the art. Yeah. Um, I am intrigued by the way that musical theater people are so uh, in tune with the business of the art. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I'm learning from that, not just, not just, the cra not just working mm -hmm. on the craft, but also really how to think about navigating this industry. Mm -hmm. So what brought you into playwriting? How did you discover the art of playwriting? <laughs> I am um, an actor and okay. a performer and a dancer. And uh, I love to perform. I love to be on stage. The actor's body and voice is, uh, is essential to theater. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I've been reading uh, Tadashi Suzuki's book, Body is the Culture is the Body. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's been talking about, or, he, you know, he was writing about that. So I've been reading about that. So as an actor, um, I found that when I was not writing my own solo shows, writing and performing my mm -hmm. own solo shows, there was very little for me out there. You have a very distinctive type. You are very interesting. I'd, I'd say I would be intrigued at writing something for you. You are so intriguing. Well, please. <laughs> Let's talk about that after the show. Um, but uh, yeah, the, so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm middle-aged. Yeah. I'm South Asian. Um, and um, I have a, you know, and I, I don't speak in this heavy South Asian accent. I sound like an American and uh, so there's really very little out there, and I haven't, I, I wasn't very good at convincing people that I was what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, I better just write my own stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I did start writing my own stuff that was more than just the solo shows, first devising mm -hmm. with some um, collaborators, and then realizing that I actually enjoy 
the writing the words. I, I enjoy the words of the story, and I enjoy that um, the momentum of the story and building that momentum. So I applied to graduate school. Mm. I was in New Mexico at the time, so okay. I went to University of New Mexico, and, and I was in their dramatic writing program. Mm -hmm. So, and then, um, you know, there it began and was exposed to this whole world of, of theater and playwriting that I had no idea was out there. In New mm -hmm. Mexico, it's easy to self-produce. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, it's easy, a lot easier to self-produce about anywhere, anywhere. but New York. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. Um, you know, but the opportunities here in New York are amazing. Yeah. So that's how I got into playwriting. Um, originally, I thought I would be writing roles for myself. Mm -hmm. And I do. I always imagine mm -hmm. myself <laughs> in those roles. But it's a little harder to... Um, to workshop those plays, yeah. being the writer yeah. and the actor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and 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 the process of of learning what the industry is about has has been really interesting for um, for my craft uh, mm -hmm. because I because even though you know I mean. Of course, I write what I want to write yeah. and what I love to write about and what compels me about the world. Um, and also, I have to keep in mind certain things. I, I have to keep in mind certain things like, is there going to be, are, are theaters going to recognize this as something that they will find actors for, mm -hmm. that they'll find an audience for? Uh, and all of those things. And so it, it's not just what I keep in mind while I'm writing, but it, now that, as I said, the being around these musical theater people who yeah. have to think about These, these musical theater people. Yeah, these wonderful, <laughs> smart, astute musical theater people who, you know, I'm just so glad to be around them because... Musical they, theater people can learn a little bit more from some freewheeling lack of structure, too. <laughs> Believe me, they, they get a lot of benefit working with you guys, I, I, I am sure. I hope so. <laughs> I hope it's mutual. But yeah, you know, to think about, you know, how... That, to think of it off the page is just as important as what it is on the page. Mm -hmm. So uh, what kind of subject matters do you like writing about most? Or care, what kind of characters or what situations? Is there a is there a certain trend you see emerging in your writing? Yeah, for me, there's three layers that I explore in most of my work. Uh, the personal, which is the human relationships between the characters, the people. The political, which is the sort of social backdrop or crisis mm -hmm. that's instigating the the interaction or the meeting of these mm -hmm. people, and then the supernatural, which mm -hmm. is um, the forces that no one actually has any control over. Um, but often my characters are people, or at least one character, will be someone with very little social, political, or economic capital. And so their agency is derived through this uh, through these supernatural powers. Often it's a, sort of some ability to commune with the dead or, um, 
one of my characters, Asha, from my play Suicide Seed, mm -hmm. uh, has this uh, sort of has has won this boon from the gods to make anything grow, like her gardens mm -hmm. grow, and and so she's her her ability to seduce people comes through that. Uh, yeah, so those are the mm -hmm. sort of three essential elements that I think really mark my work. Mm -hmm. You're saying as an actress, you're finding it hard to find find roles because you're South Asian, but American accent. Um, I find often that, you know, when I went to grad school, I know I talked with a lot of, you know, some of the other players in the program that were um, a little bit upset that so many times they were expected to write only about their culture of minority. And, and I'm wondering, have you experienced any of that then on this end as a playwright? Um, what What people expect out of you as a writer? Um, I, I'm really not sure. You know what's funny is mm -hmm. I think what people expect out of me is to not be funny. <laughs> so when I hear people read my work, sometimes they're like, what happened to all the humor in it? I know it's there, but there's sort of this way that people read my work so earnestly. And I think because there's no reference point mm -hmm. uh, for a South Asian woman to be funny mm -hmm. or or have any sass or, uh, you know, wit. Mm -hmm. So I find that really that's what th that's what people definitely don't expect. Mm -hmm. uh, so what they probably are expecting is something much more of. I, I don't know exactly yeah. what they expect. So, and I do, I do often write about South Asian okay. women, but I and I and their lives often intersect with other women of color. In in Suicide Seed, uh, the two main characters are domestic help in a, on a large uh, estate. And uh, so the South Asian woman and the Chicana, they both mm -hmm. work in the garden and sort of sh both share secrets and, you know, old uh, family legacies about how to grow things and, and uh, how to heal things. But they also have a tension around how to approach the crisis in the home. Uh, so, so, so the lives of the South Asian women intersect. In my play, The Rug mm -hmm. Dealer, the family is an Iranian-American mm -hmm. family. And in fact, I was asked this question of, well, you know, do you feel like you're appropriating something because yeah. you're not uh, Iranian? You, this and... is kind of where I was leading this, yeah, mm -hmm. this, this idea now that we all have to write about our own culture only, when I think some of the joy of being a writer is that imagination and when are we where are we going to find this balance between yeah we're not appropriating but we get to imagine the worlds we want to imagine as a writer yeah and i you know for my part i worked at a uh persian rug store for just several <laughs> months but got to know the family quite well and and the woman who whose store not yeah. life yeah. or story, yeah. but the store that this piece is yeah. based on. Uh, she's been following the play through its development. Mm -hmm. And I certainly asked her for feedback about, mm -hmm. you know, is 
is there a cultural or and political truth to this moment or this idea? Um, and I've been told very honestly when there is and when there isn't. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I, I, it's a hard call because I do want to be able to write about anyone and anything, it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also want to come to it informed, mm -hmm. you know, and, and with integrity around uh, what what am I really putting out there, yeah. and what kind of vulnerability am I exposing the community to if I do choose to write about a specific, mm -hmm. and that can be. I mean, the in Suicide Seat, I I write about a. a South Asian woman who was from a farming agricultural class in yeah. India. That is not my experience. So there is yeah. an appropriation even in that. It's not just a matter of, you know, we share some sort of genetic code as South Asians with brown skin and dark hair. So, so yeah, it can come in many ways. Yeah. This brings up, there's one particular kind of area, I don't know if you work in this or not, but you talk about the supernatural. There's one area of theater that I think is hurting really hard um, with, with you know, everything that's going on and cultural appropriation and stuff, and that's allegory. Um, you know, that we had, and I'm not saying we should go back to it, but, you know, Brecht always had his fake India and fake China, which were, you know, back in the days before the Internet, and we got also interconnected globally. We could, there, were, there were lands we couldn't imagine or didn't know that we could set our parallel tales to imitate, you know, or life here. And this is why I think science fiction and fantasy has taken off to a much more popular level in the past two decades, is because that becomes the allegory mm -hmm. for life, the superhero tales, the fantasy, the science fiction. But all three of those are genres that have not proven to work well on the stage. Hmm. So what is our stage allegory now that we're in this era of we know everything about everybody else and, and we don't want to insult other cultures? But allegory is such an important way of learning and telling a tale that teaches a lesson. And I don't have an answer. I'm asking you. I'm wondering if you've thought about it or if you have any ideas. Or <laughs> Well, you know, I think that it could work really well on stage. And I've seen it work well on stage. Um and I'm and now I'm like, oh my God, I just said that. I better be able to think of an example. I guess for me, um, I, I'm thinking about some of Jose Rivera's work and even to some extent Susan Laurie Parks, mm -hmm. who it, it, it's not a slice of life world yeah. that she creates. Or Jose Rivera, I'm getting ready to go see a piece by um, Luis Alfaro mm -hmm. at the public. Uh, and I, that the De La Gorda, or no, no, no not De La Gorda, um, um, the Los Del Rex, or no, uh, I just saw it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and now I can't, well, I'm like, I'm going Oedipus to see it. And, Oedipus, Oedipus, Del Oedipus El Rey, yes. <laughs> El Rey. And, yeah. you know, his, his play Electricidad is one of my favorites. Mm. So I think that there's so much possibility for that. I wonder if we're so... And I think that this is a directorial thing as much as a directorial and a production thing is a, is a writing thing mm -hmm. that I'm not, I don't know why we can't conceive of 
of even a play that's written as a slice of life play beyond sort of the way that we watch TV. You know, sometimes I go to see plays and there's a kitchen and yes. a sofa and like, okay. I, I mean, and this is just my opinion, but no, I got a kitchen and sofa at home. That's why yeah. I, didn't, I didn't come to the theater to see that. Yeah, and, and I still <laughs> feel like we're reeling there. So. All right, well, uh, Riti yeah. Sachdeva, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you have a wonderful time through your Dramatist Guild Fellowship, uh, Dramatist Guild Foundation Fellowship. Yeah. Get the whole, the double F in there. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And thanks for coming on and sharing your uh, stories and your ideas with our listeners. Thank you. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up this episode of Broadway Bullet. We're going to be back next week with the finale for the season, an episode I'm calling Broadway Masterclass. Got some great stuff. We've got uh, Jeremy Chernick, who designed special effects for a little show called Frozen. Um, I think there's a few people that like it. Uh, And uh, he also did special effects for Aladdin and a lot of other things, and he kind of talks about everything he does. Then we've also got more from uh, Rick Ellis, who's going to talk to us about book writing with musicals, and more from Glenn Slater talking about lyric writing with musicals. So uh, it's a kind of a great episode to check out. Also, again, if uh, look at the University of Providence uh, Theater and Business Arts, if you'd like to look at a different way of preparing for the theater world. And until then, I am Michael Gilbo, your host, and I will see you next week. Oh, oh, oh.